Sometimes he seems so distant, so different. Is he even real? What if that transcendent, holy, glorious creator of the universe wanted to meet us? What if we could know him? Not just know about him, but actually know him. Encountering God. A new series at Stapleton Church. January 2019. Good morning. Hi. How many of you guys are tired this morning? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that whole spring forward thing. I don't know why we're still doing that, but yeah, we're here, and it's good to be with you guys. Uh, as Sawyer mentioned, my name's Grant Ryder, and I do have the privilege of serving here as our community director. I've um, been in this role for, I don't know, about nine months now. Uh, my wife, Leah, and our little girl, Ray, we moved here to Colorado about nine months ago. Uh, I'm in, in seminary, working on my Master of Divinity down at Denver Seminary, and um, have had the privilege of... Uh, serving in this role, being on staff at this church in the meantime as well. And uh, we can definitely say that we have enjoyed being here so far. And uh, probably the most exciting thing that Leah and I have, have mentioned multiple times is just um, this church family. We have really, really loved being a part of this church and have felt super welcomed and uh, have loved just building the relationships that we have uh, so far. Um, and, and we look forward to continuing to do that. So... The thing I'm excited about, though, today is uh, that we get to be together. I know it's early. I know the time changed a little bit, but we get to be together and we get to open up God's word and, and hear and see what he has to teach us this morning. And if you've been with us um, for the past any of the past five weeks, you probably know that we were in a series on the kingdom of God. Pastor Matt did a fantastic job leading us through Matthew chapter 13, giving us a look at the kingdom of God. And how we're a part of that in the here and now. If you want to listen to any of those sermons, uh, there's tons you can learn from them. They're on our website. I'd encourage you to go back and, and, and review some of those. Before that, though, we were in a series entitled Encountering God, which you just saw a little promo for. And in that series, we were looking at different stories throughout the Bible in which God actually encountered certain individuals. And we're looking at what, what we learn about God and what, what we hear him say and how that affects our lives here and now. Well, today, we're jumping back into that series. And we're looking at an encounter, actually one of the first encounters that God actually had with mankind. And this encounter, I would say, is one of the most shocking encounters with God in the whole Bible. In fact, this encounter that we're going to look at is so stunning that we even today are feeling the effects of it still. And while this encounter would eventually shake the world, it didn't exactly start out that way. In fact, it started out unlike anything we could probably imagine. It started out in the stillness of a peaceful garden with a man named Adam and a woman named Eve in the book of Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, smartphone, or whatever, you can follow along in that. Otherwise, the words will be up here on the screen throughout. But the world at this time, when we step into this story, can only be described as perfect. There was harmony on every level of the universe. 
man's relationship to creation, uh, man's relationship to mankind, Adam and Eve, even man's relationship to God. It says that uh, Adam and Eve would walk and talk with God in the garden. Imagine that. Nothing could be better than this. And yet, as we step into this story this morning, the first thing we read is this. In chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. So right off the bat, we're introduced to a serpent, or a snake. But this isn't just any serpent, right? It's described as being crafty. And this is significant because the Hebrew word that's used here to to describe this, uh, it gives off a negative vibe. A vibe that kind of suggests that amid the perfect harmony of the world, something unusual has stepped in. Something isn't quite right. And although this chapter never specifically says this, what we know of how Satan is described throughout Scripture, even at points that refer to this moment, we can be certain that this serpent is actually Satan in the form of a snake. This is not a good thing. The enemy of God has slipped into God's perfect creation, and now he stood face to face with Adam and Eve. And he starts engaging them, and he says this. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I don't know about you, but when I first meet someone, I normally introduce myself, maybe ask a few questions to kind of get to know them. But that's not what happens here, is it? Satan jumps right to the point. And and his question comes off a little bit abrupt, maybe kind of random to us. But it's actually based on something very specific that God had said to Adam when he created him. We see in the chapters before this that when God created Adam, he put him in the Garden of Eden to care for it and to enjoy his good creation. And then he looked at Adam and he said this in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So think about this. Everything that God had created up to this point is perfect. It's good. And he puts Adam in the garden and he says, enjoy it. You can eat from any tree that you want, except for this one. And it's important for us to understand that by God establishing that boundary, he wasn't making life hard on Adam and Eve. They could eat from any tree they wanted. But he was establishing a clear choice. They could live in perfect harmony with God and enjoy every good thing or disobey him and suffer the consequences of death. Well, Eve remembered what God had said, and she doesn't wait for anybody else to speak up. She jumps into this conversation, and in verse 2 and 3 of Genesis 3, she responds to Satan and says, Well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. Now, if you notice from the verse we just read a second ago, Eve does add a little bit to God's original command. And there is some significance to that, I think. But the important thing that I want us to see is that between those two verses, Adam and Eve are both fully aware of what God had told them. 
They both know that for their own good, God had said, don't eat from this tree. They know what they should and should not do. But watch how Satan responds to what Eve says. In the next verses, he says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So you catching this? Satan accuses God of lying to Adam and Eve. You're not going to die. But on top of this, and this is important, he presents God, he portrays God as if he's selfishly holding something back from Adam and Eve. Something that they deserve. As if God is somehow afraid of what might happen if they actually enjoy this. But what's even more than that, and this really gets me, what Satan is doing here is he's tempting Eve with the idea that if she obeys God, she's going to miss out on something. If you obey God, you'll never really be happy. How many of us can relate to that? Did God really say he doesn't want you to be happy? Did God really say that he wants all of your life and not just parts of it? Did God really say he doesn't want you to have sex before you're married? Did did God really say he doesn't want you to be comfortable in your life? Did God really say he doesn't want you to be happy? Of course he does. You deserve this. You know what's better for you than he does. That's what Eve's faced with right here. And what's interesting is that after, God ra- or after Satan raises these accusations against God, we see in the next verse that Eve turns to the tree and she starts looking at it in a very different way. Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Sometimes just knowing what God says about something isn't enough to stop us from sinning. This verse stuns me because it's so descriptive of the process that unfolds in Eve's heart and her experience in this moment when she's faced with what is really the most important question of her life. Do I trust that what God has said is good for me is actually good for me? Do I stay within the boundaries that God has established for my life, for my good, for my well-being? Or, maybe God isn't as good as he seems. Maybe God is just trying to control my life and keep me from the freedom that I deserve. Well, if you're anything like me, you can probably relate to those questions. But you know what is hard for us to relate to about this? What's hard is that Up to this point, Adam and Eve did not know sin. They didn't know evil. They didn't know pain and suffering and hurt and brokenness. 
No, they didn't even know. There were no barriers between their, them and their relationship with God. They walked with God. They talked with God. And they had experienced the reality that up to this point, God had satisfied their lives with every good thing. And yet, Eve looks at the tree, Adam looks at the tree, and they start wondering, what would it be like to be like God? They start opening themselves up to the idea that maybe eating from this tree might actually be a good thing for me. And all that it might add to my life if I do. It's crazy. She saw, she desired, and she ate. And then Adam, who seems to kind of be passively standing by watching this, follows in the same way to disobey God, and he ate. This is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. In one act of disobedience, sin had shattered the glorious relationship between God and man. Think of all that was lost right there. Well, the next verse goes on to show us the result of this, that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve Wanted to be like God, craving the power to know. But ironically, what this verse shows us is that what they come to know is that they're naked and ashamed of themselves. What they thought was going to make them more like God actually has now made them feel really far away from him. Sin promised them everything, but it delivered nothing. And how many of us can relate to that? That's the promise of sin, isn't it? It's so blinding, right? When we're faced with that opportunity to sin, you can fill in the blanks here. But we say things like, but that'll make me feel so much better. Or if I only had blank, my life would be so much better. So much easier. But so often on the other side of that, we respond with, if that was supposed to make me feel so much better, why do I feel so terrible now? Or if that was supposed to make my life so much easier, why do I feel so behind, so stressed? Those are the same type of responses, reactions that Adam and Eve were feeling when they realized what they had done. So what did they do? Well, they did what most of us do when we really mess up. They try to cover it up. They run to the trees and they start sowing leaves together to try to cover up their shame. And the next verses kind of build on this and show us that while they're kind of frantically doing this, evening sets in and they start hearing God approaching them. So they hide. Now think about that. Adam and Eve up to this point did not know fear. I'm sure that they feared God in the sense that they revered him and respected him in his goodness, his greatness, his glory. But now they're terrified of him. And they're hiding. 
And I can just imagine their hearts are racing as they're wondering what in the world is going to happen next. Well, verse 9 goes on to show us that out of the silence, God calls out to Adam. And he says, where are you? Where are you? How many of you ever played hide-and-go-seek with kids before? Yeah, it's usually a pretty fun time, right? Usually what happens is they'll make you go count, and you know, as you're counting to 10 or 20 or whatever it is, you can kind of hear the kids bumping into each other and uh, frantically trying to find a hiding place. And you can usually figure out where they're at <laughs> while you're counting. But you want to get in the game with them, right? So you, so you get up and you start kind of pacing the area and you start calling out, Where are you? Where are you? Hey, usually about the third or fourth time you say that, you start hearing little giggles, right? Or you start hearing little outbursts of anticipation and excitement. So you draw closer. Where are you? And usually what happens is just out of sheer anticipation, excitement, even fear of being caught, the kid will jump out, right? And they'll they'll give themselves away before you ever expose where they're at. Well, honestly, I think that's a little bit of what's happening right here. God calls out to Adam while he's hiding. Where are you? And Adam knows that he can't hide from God. He knows he can't pretend with God. So he jumps out. And he answers God. And he says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So Adam answers God, but as you can see in his answering, he kind of stumbles over himself a little bit. And he openly admits that he's ashamed of something and he's afraid. Two things that have never really happened before. But look at how God responds to Adam. In the next verse he says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam sharply responds to God and says, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. And then God patiently turns to Eve, and he asks, What is this you've done? And she says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Why do you think God asks these questions? Isn't God all-knowing? Isn't God everywhere at once? Doesn't he know what they've done? Why is he asking this? I think when God asks questions in the Bible, we're meant to pay attention. God's not asking these questions because he needs somebody to kind of fill him in and catch him up on what's going on. God asks Adam and Eve these questions because he's inviting them to respond, to own up to what they've done, to confess and repent of the fact that they just sinned against him. But what do they do instead? Well, they start shifting the blame. Maybe, maybe playing the victim, right? Adam points at God and his wife, while Eve points at the serpent. Meanwhile, never really owning up to the fact that they just disobeyed God. And isn't that the effect that sin has on us, too? It's okay. We can admit it. We've all probably been here in one form or another. I know an example of this in my own life is um, 
when my wife and I get in a fight, yes, we we do that occasionally. Um, we'll get in a fight, and, and at times I'll realize that I'm wrong about something, right? But in my sin and selfishness, I'll react by trying to give some sort of reasonable, logical explanation for why I did what I did. As if to say, well, there's a reason why I mistreated you. As if she's going to look at that and say, yeah, you know, you're right. You really are justified in that. It hasn't happened yet. Um, but that's the effect sin has on us, right? Rather than just come to the God who knows our hearts, we run away from him. We run to other things, other substances, other people to try to relieve some of that tension and make us feel better about ourselves. As if to say we're not really that bad. Sometimes we even make excuses and we say things like, well, if that person wouldn't have treated me so bad, well, I certainly wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have acted out in that way. And sometimes we even look back at God himself and we say things like, God, if you would just do something here, if you just give me this, my life wouldn't be so stressed all the time. I wouldn't be so angry. My family and my marriage would be so much healthier. We try to somehow cover up the fact that God sees us as we are. Meanwhile, God's just standing there with his hands open saying, just, just come to me. Just come to me. Our friends Adam and Eve were obviously missing that point. So God steps in and, and he changes the tone a little bit. And in these next verses, hear me when I say this, God does what he should do. As a holy, just, and righteous God, he judges their sin. And we could gloss over this part, we could summarize it, but I want to just take a second and read through these next four to five verses so that we kind of specifically see how God responds to their sin. So God starts with the serpent in verse 14, and he kind of works backwards to Adam. But he starts by saying this, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then to Eve, he turns and says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And then finally to Adam, God turns and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. We could probably go line by line here and kind of talk specifically about what God's saying. But the important thing to see in what God says here is that because Adam and Eve sinned, there's a complete disruption, a complete distortion of the harmony that existed in the world before this. Did you catch that? 
What used to be the man and his wife were naked and unashamed has now become replaced by the tendency to hide from each other in secrecy and in shame. What used to be uh, that unity and that oneness, um, that vulnerability, that love, that trust that existed in their relationship has now been disrupted by the desire to control and rule over one another. But even man's relationship to creation is disrupted, right? What used to be um, the the joyful task of, of caring for God's creation has now been replaced by hard labor. What used to be God's daily provision for them and and then their enjoyment of every good thing has now been disrupted by the struggle to just survive. And amid all of that, as it says in this last line, it will ultimately end in the experience of physical death, which is what God said in the beginning. And the sad reality of all this is that we're not exempt from the effects and consequences of even this sin. We all feel that pain and that hurt of broken relationships, right? Even in my own life, just like six months ago, my two parents, who have been married for over 30 years, who've done over 20 years of ministry together, who have seven grandkids, they divorced. And it was a sad and messy and painful process for everybody. We know that pain of relational hurt. We also see the violence around us on the news every day and, and, and the lust for power that, that's in so many structures of our world today. And I'm sure most of us probably have felt that pressure to just survive, make ends meet. And we're definitely all aware of the fact that physical death awaits us at any moment. This is what God had said, and the consequences of sin are real. And if that's not enough, look at how our story ends in verses 23 and 24. It says, The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Even God's relationship to man has now been disrupted by the presence of sin. So God sends Adam and Eve out of his presence to to face their consequences of their sin in a world that's no longer the way it's supposed to be. And I'm sure by now, you probably are picking up on the fact that this is an incredibly tragic story. And I think that it's probably uncomfortable for a lot of us. We all want the happy ending, right? But I think we need to wrestle with what this story is really saying. So you ready for this? You're probably not going to like me for this, but I think the big idea of our story today is this. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. I realize that's a heavy word for us this morning. 
And it's a little bit uncomfortable even preaching on it. But I think that the story needs to be read and understood for the tragedy that it is. The one that says that when we choose to say to God, I know what's better for my life than you do. When we believe the lie that says obeying God means missing out on happiness. When we step outside of the boundaries God has placed for our lives, it can only end in brokenness. The consequences of sin are real. And this story is a powerful reminder to each and every one of us that the choices we make in this life have consequences. Adam and Eve had to learn that the hard way. But you know what I love about this story? I love the fact that even in their sin, God did not just leave Adam and I, Adam and Eve to die in their sin. Even in the face of the judgment and the consequences of their sin, God did not abandon Adam and Eve. And you know what? We see this in this story. Back in verse 15, when God judged Satan, he gave the entire human race a faint strand of hope. Watch what he says. To Satan, in his judgment, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. For thousands of years, this short verse has been understood by the church and by theologians and scholars to be God's first response to the sin and evil in our world today. Because right here, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of sin and deception and all that was lost, God proclaimed that at some point in the future, in the history of time, someone is going to come who will crush the head of Satan. Someone is going to come who will defeat the power of sin and death forever. Someone is going to come who will restore all that was lost in the fall. So yes, sin does have consequences, but God gives hope. God gives hope. And I'm here to tell you today that the hope that God proclaimed to Adam and Eve, even as distant as it was, it has been realized. The someone that God proclaimed was going to come to deliver mankind from, from the effects of sin and death, he's come. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus stepped into our existence. And although he could have, he didn't just start over. He didn't just wipe out the effects of sin by, by terminating everything and just starting things over. No, you know how he did it? He did it in the same way that God restored Adam and Eve from their sin. In verse 21 of our story, before God sends them out of the garden, it says that he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Adam and Eve deserved to die. But God, we believe, spared them by killing an animal in their place and covering them with new clothes. And you know what? In the same way, each of us deserve to be banished from God's presence because of our sin, 
But Jesus came to us. He took our sin on himself, and in the most unexpected way, he went to the cross, and he died in our place. Amen. And when he rose from the grave, just like God said he would, he crushed Satan, and he defeated the power of sin and death forever. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that was proclaimed to Adam and Eve, and it's available to us today. Michael Bird, an Australian theologian, says it better than, ever, than I ever could in reflecting on this hope. He says that the cross and the empty tomb are where God's wrath and mercy meet, where God's verdict against us becomes God's verdict for us, where our old selves are crucified with Christ and where we're raised with Christ and where sin is cleansed and new creation begins. That is the hope that God proclaimed to Adam and Eve, and it's the hope that he gives to us today. So as we kind of close out this service, and the band comes up, I want to acknowledge the fact that I know that there's many of us here who have experienced, who are experiencing the effects of sin in our life. And whether that's relational pain or brokenness, whether that's physical pain, sorrow, loss, or or even sin that's been done to you, I want you to know that there's hope. And I want to encourage you to come to Christ and let him be the hope that he promises to be for all of mankind. Communicate peace and healing in whatever the circumstances of your life may be. And I also want to acknowledge that there's probably some of us here who are running who are hiding from God. And just like Adam and Eve, we're reaching to other things. We're reaching to money. We're reaching to the attention of others. We're reaching to our self-image or our work or our success in order to try to cover up some sort of brokenness that's there. I want to encourage you to lay those things down to Christ. All he wants from you is just to come to him and let him bring that restoration to your life that he promises he will. Sin does have consequences, but God gives each and every one of us hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we give thanks this morning. That even in the face of sin and death, Lord, you have provided hope for us all in your son, Jesus Christ, today. I don't know what the circumstances of everybody's life is here today, Lord, but I pray that no one would leave this place without finding hope in Jesus today. We thank you, God, for the gift of salvation, and we rejoice in you today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.